Well, good morning. What time is it exactly anyway? It's amazing how one hour can, can throw you off so much. It was so fun, you know, throughout the course of the morning, I'd be preaching and you'd see somebody walk in like from the side, see me preaching, like look at their watch and turn around and walk out. Like you just knew that they were, if you think you're at the 10 o'clock service and that all of a sudden we have guitars and stuff like that, welcome to the 1115 service. We're glad that you're with us um, for this service of worship. And I mean, for me, it's, I mean, you, I mean, you can just drive into the central time zone. It's not, it's not any different. To me, it's the anticipation, right? So like this morning, I know I'm preaching three o'clock in the morning. Bink, I am wide awake. Like I've been waiting to preach this sermon for a long time. So I hope you're ready because I'm ready and let's get started. One of my best friends from college graduated with a degree in statistics and then decided to change course a little bit to head into medical school. And as he got more and more focused on what he wanted to do with his medical degree, he decided to focus on this area. He decided to focus on neonatology, life at its most precious, life at its most vulnerable. Imagine that your job day in and day out is to care for tiny premature infants that sometimes are just a couple of pounds, newly brought into life and into the world. And so you can imagine with his mind swirling on all the math side of his brain, all the probabilities of different things, and then the other part of his brain that knows all of the biology, all the expertise of what he does day in and day out, and then he gets to the point where it's time to start his own family. And even though there's probably no one more qualified to help with a child that could be brought into the world if that child had challenges or came early, there's such a thing as almost maybe knowing too much, right? In fact, I remember being on the, t- the phone with him and he said, Rich, honestly, I'm amazed day in and day out that with all the different things that can go wrong, how often we have healthy children that are brought into the world. And when it came time for him to start his own family, he confessed to me that that he was nervous, that he was anxious, because he knew how often and how wrong it can go. Even someone with his competency, still afraid. You know, we don't tend to notice things until something goes wrong. I don't know if you woke up today and uh, were grateful for your left big toe. Did anybody praise God for their left big toe this morning? There, There actually was a woman who hobbled out of church in front of me today, and she had a boot on her left foot, and she said, I thanked God for my big left toe this morning. But you don't tend to notice these kinds of things. Did you thank God this morning for the ligaments and the tendons and the skin and the fact that it helps you to balance that... You are pain-free as you walk? Probably not. You probably didn't notice your left big toe this morning. You would only notice it if you stubbed your toe. You would only notice it if you had broken your toe. And it's in those moments that you're quite well aware of all the different complexities that is that different part of your body. You know, it's not just with our bodies that we don't tend to notice things until they're not working well. 
As a pastor, uh, people with, you know, relationships will often come to my office. They, they don't tend to come to my office and sit down and say, you know what? Things are really good. We thought we'd just set up an appointment, let you know that things are really good. Grateful to God, grateful to you, Rich. Just wanted to come in and let you know how good our marriage is right now. That's not the way it usually works. People usually come in because there's a struggle, there's a pain point, there's a pressure point. Usually there's a betrayal or some sort of breach of trust. One of the things that I've observed over time is that when a couple comes to me, and let's say that there's been an affair, there's not just this one little wound that needs to be mended. What happens in a moment like that is that everything just gets tossed up into the air. I hear things like, I don't even know who you are anymore, or I don't even know who I am anymore, or everything that I thought that was real or true about our relationship, I'm calling into question right now. There's something about a shift that happens in that moment where it's not just one little thing, it's that everything starts to unravel. I noticed that This happened for a way for me when I was 27 years old. I was a young, fresh pastor in the New York City area when two airplanes flew into the Twin Towers. My wife flew out of Newark Airport that morning, and one of my first thoughts was, what if my wife is on one of those planes? What if all of these people who are pouring out into the train station of our community, what what if this was a chemical or biological attack? What if, what if we're not just helping people, but we're exposing ourselves to danger? What if this was just the beginning of attack and there's more to come? What, what, if, what if the hundreds of people in our community that work in those buildings don't come home? Which is mostly what happened. In the midst of all of that, everything that I thought I knew as a man, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, it all came down into rubble. It wasn't just one thing that needed to be addressed. I was facing chaos and uncertainty unlike I had never seen. I love how Max Licato talked about it. He talks about it this way. He says, they're talking about layoffs at work, slowdowns in the economy, flare-ups in the Middle East, turnovers at headquarters, downturns in the housing market, upswings in global warming, breakouts of Al-Qaeda cells, some demented dictator is collecting nuclear warheads the way that others collect fine wines. A strain of swine flu is crossing the border. We fear being sued, finishing last, going broke. We fear the mole on the back, the new kid on the block, and the sound of the clock as it ticks us closer to the grave. And you need to hear me in this, that no investment portfolio, no increased security system, no uptick in your educational quotient, no mood-altering drug, none of those things are fully going to be able to insulate you from the uncertainty and the chaos and the reality that is life. And that at some point in your life, and you may not feel it right now, everything may be really good, not just with your big toe, but with your life. It may be really good right now, but at some point, that reality is going to come breaking in. You will be confronted with that reality. And the question is, in that moment, what are you going to do? 
what's going to happen when it all falls apart. We're in this series of messages where we're trying to learn how to be faithful to the command, be not afraid. We're trying to learn what it means to live lives that are not dominated by fear. We live in an anxious age. We live in a time that's a meteor shower of what ifs. And in this series, we're talking about what if I don't matter? What if things fall apart? What if I can't keep up? What if I don't have what it takes? What if I run out? What if that person isn't safe? What if I'm not included? What if this is the end? Today, we're talking about the fear of uncertainty or how do you handle the chaos of the way things are in this world? There's a little encounter in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus confronts the chaos head on. And Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. And suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake. And so the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And he replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Matthew, who wrote this story down, was a disciple of Jesus. He writes as a disciple, and he writes a manual for disciples. He talks about in Matthew chapter 4, the calling of the disciples in chapters 5 through 7. He captures the Sermon on the Mount of what it means to become a disciple, what it means to, to do the following of Jesus. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that when the crowds heard Jesus, they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority and not as one of their regular teachers. And the rest of the book of Matthew is all about the unveiling and the revealing of the authority of who this Jesus is. And it gets all the way to the end in Matthew 28 in the famous of the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. So go and make disciples of all nations, submerging them in the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. It's all about his authority. And so in chapter 8, we start to see the different kinds of things that Jesus has authority over it. You can check it for yourself. You can see that Jesus has authority over paralysis, that Jesus has authority over leprosy, that Jesus has authority over evil spirits, that Jesus has authority. You can check the text. Even Jesus has authority over in-laws. I know it's hard to believe, but it's in there. It's in the text. And then today we're confronted with the fact that Jesus even has authority over the wind and the waves, that he is Lord of creation, that he is Lord of nature. When Matthew's writing this story down, he has his thesaurus out and he's thinking of different words that he can use to describe how big this storm was. And he's like, rain shower? No, that doesn't cut it. Squall? Mm Mm-mm. Texas thunderstorm, no. And then he gets to a word. He calls it a furious storm. 
In the Greek, it's the word seismos. It's the word where we get seismology. He's describing seismic activity, but not just any kind of seismic activity of the earth shaking. He's talking about mega seismic, great seismic activity. He will only use the word seismos a couple of other times later in the book. He will use it for the earth shaking moment and when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he will use it on that Easter Sunday morning to describe when they roll the stone back for that Easter encounter. In other words, Jesus is Lord of suffering in the cross. He is Lord over death in the empty tomb. And here we discover that he is truly Lord over all of creation. The question is, do you really believe that? And if so, what does that mean? You need to realize that in this story, the disciples who followed Jesus in the boat, many of them were experienced fishermen. This is what the Sea of Galilee looks like after a storm. And so they would not have been frightened by just any old storm. This was something that absolutely terrified them even though they were competent, even though they were experienced. You also need to know that the disciples followed Jesus into the storm, and one of the things that you need to understand that we have the misconception that if you follow Jesus, that life is going to be a pleasure cruise and it is always smooth sailing. That is not the way that it really works. In fact, right before this story, is a wonderful little encounter about two people who come up to Jesus to say, and they say the right things. They're like, Jesus, we will follow you wherever you uh, will go. We'll follow you wherever that is. But then they have some caveats. They hedge a little bit. And in those hedges, it's exposed that they want to follow Jesus on their terms, on their timetable, and for their benefit, and they don't get to follow Jesus as a result. He's the one with the authority. You follow him on his terms, and following him might take you where you don't want to go. It might take you into a storm. And in the midst of that storm, Jesus asleep, completely calm, non-anxious. The disciples wake him up. We're going to die. We're going to drown. And Jesus is like, why are you so afraid? Notice he doesn't say, why are you afraid? It's pretty obvious why they're afraid. The question isn't like, will you experience the biological reality of fear if you're confronted with a big storm? It's like, why are you in a panic? And he doesn't even wait for them to give him the answer. He says, you of little faith. Technically in the Greek, what he says is you little faiths. It's one word. It's like he, he, it's, it's like he coins a term. It's like Jesus hands out jerseys that say the little faiths. And it's like, welcome to team little faith, you idiots. This is, this is what he's dealing with. But all it takes at the beginning is just a little faith. 
It's not what we want it to be at the end, but it'll be enough for now. There is a connection between, and I know I have to be very deliberate with this, there is a connection between our abnormal levels of fear and our lack of faith. But I am not talking about faith in the sense of like intellectual assent as if like, do you believe that Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States? That's not what I'm talking about with faith. Nor am I talking about some sort of passive resignation in regards to faith of, of like just kind of a passive assent to, to something that might be true. I love the way that Adam Hamilton writes it. He puts it this way. He says, I'm not, for example, talking about a saccharine faith that assures us that if we pray hard enough, nothing bad will ever happen to us. As a pastor, I walked with enough people through hell to know that that is not how life works. I am not proposing the theologically inaccurate view that everything that happens is the will of God. And I wouldn't insult you by suggesting that if you only had enough faith, that you'll never have fears. But I will suggest that a well-considered faith in God and the timeless insights of Scripture can have a profound impact on your ability to experience peace, hope, and joy despite your fear. I love how the great biblical commentator, Dale Bruner, talks about it. He says, faith is courageous confidence that Jesus is equal to the occasion. Jesus is in the boat with you, and you're experiencing a storm. Do you think that he is up to this? One of the things I like to do to unwind and have fun is to play the game of golf. It's really kind of random every once in a while you get paired with people you don't know. I got paired with this one group, didn't know him very well. There was one guy in the group that the minute he found out I was a pastor, I mean, he just laid into me. He was this incredibly vocal atheist and he just poked fun at me the whole time and there were little barbs that were going back and forth, little zingers back and forth the whole round. It was actually, he was annoying. And, um, <laughs> And I mean, I'm a man of God. Don't worry about that. But he was annoying. And so we're playing golf. And there's one part of my God. You, you need to know, I enjoy golf. I'm okay at golf. But there's one part of my game that's just, you never know what's going to happen. And that's if I end up in a place like this. Just to be clear, this is not the course that I played, and this is not me in the sand trap. I wanted to inspire you, not frighten you with the image that might get put up on the screen. So we're most of the way through the round. I'm in a hole, uh, like 15, 16, something like that. And I'm in a big sand trap. And, and I'm like, you need to know that when I'm in a sand trap, I have no idea where that ball's going. Just don't clue. And so I, so I tell them, I'm like, hey, guys, you're a little too close to the green. Like, you need to clear out a little bit. And, and, and he won't move. The, the atheist is just standing there. And he, he literally looked at me and he said, I believe in you, pastor. <laughs> and I said, I thought you said you didn't have faith. And he's like, oh, I have faith in you. I said, listen, pal, you really ought to put your faith in things that are far more reliable than my sand game. And he wouldn't move. He's like, I believe in you, pastor. You could do it. And so, I mean, it's the only time I've ever stood above a ball and then, and like literally was praying, Lord, let me hit this errant shot and hit this annoying guy to your glory. <laughs> and of course I swung and it went close to the ball. I almost made a believer out of him. I mean, after that great golf shot. The point of the story is that you never just have faith. You have to have faith in something. You have to have faith in someone. Everybody is a person of faith. It's only a matter of what your object of faith is. 
What do you have faith in in life? Do you have faith in your circumstances? Do you have faith in your abilities? Do you have faith in your background? Do you have faith in your family? Do you have faith in your work? What, what do you put your trust in? What do you put your confidence in? That's what you have faith in. And the point of the story is that our faith in God is usually so little. There's a true story of a man who was speaking on a college campus, and while he was speaking on that college campus, he was talking about um, kind of what discipleship is supposed to look like. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Not the watered-down version that is kind of the hatch-match-and-dispatch gospel that we so often hear about. And, and so when he gets to the Q&A, there's this woman, this teenage, uh, this kind of this young woman who's a student there, comes, comes with a microphone, and she says, I don't know about this whole thing that you're talking about up here. Like, isn't the whole point of this thing that we're just supposed to believe? And being a good educator, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, he said, do you believe in marriage? And she goes, yeah, I believe in marriage. He goes, why do you believe in marriage? And she goes, well, I think it provides really good security, like a promise. I believe that it's really good for families. It provides kind of the well-being of society for kids, that kind of thing. Yeah, I believe in marriage. And he said, therefore, by the power vested in me, I now pronounce you to be married. And she's like, yeah, that's not how it works. I'm not dating anybody. I'm not engaged to anybody. He's like, you're absolutely right. You don't have anybody in your life right now that you are giving yourself to or they are giving themselves to you. You can't just believe in marriage. You have to actually enter into the relationship. That it's about commitment. It's about dedication. It's about loyalty. It's about reliability. It's about trust. There's more to it than just believe. Sixteen hundred years ago, one of our great early thinkers in Christianity, a guy by the name of Jerome, said this in regards to this story in the Bible. He said in the face of the storm, they said this, that creation recognized its creator. Jesus is right there with you in the midst of the uncertainty and the wind and the waves that you are facing. The question is, like creation, do you recognize your creator? Do you have faith? Does Jesus have the authority to do what he's come to do? I love how Matthew weaves the same language that the mega storm becomes mega calm, peace, shalom, stillness. That Jesus doesn't just enter into the storm, that he calms the storm. One of the books that I got to read earlier this year uh, is by a wonderful woman author by the name of Kristen Hanna. Um, her book, The Nightingale, is the one that's gotten a lot of attention. Her most recent book is called The Great Alone. It's the story of a 13-year-old girl by the name of Lenny who lives in the Seattle area. It takes place during the 1970s. It's post-Vietnam. Her dad comes back from Vietnam as a traumatized man. 
he was in combat with a fellow soldier who died, and the soldier left in his will a little kind of cabin up in Nebraska, I'm sorry, not Nebraska, in Alaska. And with this cabin, they decided to uproot their family and just go and move to Alaska. And they get there in the middle of the summer, and with the long days and the magnificent beauty, they were amazed as soon as they got there at how obsessed everybody was with the coming winter. I mean, you... You might have these long days, but you cannot use them leisurely if you are not absolutely fixated on doing all the preparations that need to get done in order to prepare for the winter. You are not going to make it. In fact, Kristen Hanna describes it this way. She says, that lesson, that revelation is my mother once told me about love is Alaska's great and terrible gift. Those who come for beauty alone or for some imaginary life or those who seek safety will fail. In the vast expanse of this unpredictable wilderness, you will either become your best self and flourish or you will run away screaming from the dark and the cold and the hardship. There is no middle ground, no safe place, not here in the great alone. And it's not just the hostility of the winter that was coming. There was a winter, there was a storm, even in their own cabin and their own family because of the trauma that he'd experienced. Her dad was abusing alcohol. He was abusing his wife. It's this horrible situation. In the midst of all of those challenges, as Lenny grows a little older into high school, she falls in love with a young boy named Matthew. They're about the only same age teenagers in that little village. One day when Matthew is walking in the winter, his mom falls through the cracks in the ice and into the water and immediately dies of the hypothermia, the extreme conditions. The community is absolutely stunned and grieving, and instead of meeting at the church that's just a few blocks down the road, they meet in the local saloon, and this is how Kristen Hanna describes Lenny's reaction. Lenny saw how death impacted people, saw the gazed look in their eyes, the way that they shook their heads, the way their sentences broke in half, as if they couldn't decide if silence or words would release them from sorrow. Lenny had never known to anyone who had died before. She had seen death on television. She had read about it in her beloved books. Death made you cry. It filled you with sadness. But in the best of her books, there was peace too and satisfaction, a sense of the story ending as it should. In real life, she saw it wasn't like that. It was sadness opening up inside you, changing how you saw the world. It made her think about God and what he offered at times like this. And she wondered for the first time what her parents believed in, what she believed in. And she saw how the idea of heaven could be comforting. She thinks about God. She, she considers heaven. And then that's the end of her faith journey. She doesn't take a step. And the later resolution in the book, it feels 
a little empty to me. There's faith, there's faith in one another, there's faith in human ingenuity and grit and perseverance and all those things are good things, but do we honestly think that all of those things can stand up to life in the great alone? I don't think it can. There's got to be more. All it takes, Lenny, is a little faith. That's all it takes. But she won't take the step. She longs for God. She's intrigued by God. But nobody walks from the saloon to the church. It's the great alone. And so, is there any hope? Is there any hope for little premature babies that are born too young? I believe there is because we have not only a teacher, we have a Lord. Is there any hope? Is there any hope in the midst of national disasters? I believe that there is because we have not just a healer, we have a Lord. Is there any hope in the midst of the storm of the winter that comes? I believe that there is because we have not just a savior, we have a Lord. Even amidst the wind and the waves and the storm or whatever it is that you might be facing right now, and even if you're not facing it, it's coming. There's some moment where uncertainty and reality are going to pierce through, and it's going to be bigger than a left toe, and it's going to cause you to question everything. And will you have at least a little faith? all it takes to begin. Let's pray. Lord, all of the competence in the world, all of the expertise, all of the investment portfolios, security systems, education, medication, none of it fully insulates us from uncertainty. Lord, we don't tend to notice this reality until things go wrong and that something shatters our preconceived notions of life, of relationship, of, of everything. Lord, in the midst of this meteor shower, an age of anxiety, will you teach us what it means to be disciples? Show us that you have authority over all of life. Keep the chaos at bay. Remind us that it's not about a pleasure cruise or smooth sailing, but that it means to follow you to be close. That it's not about life on our terms or for our own benefit, and that the seismic realities expose our, our lack of faith and the high degree of our fear. 
And so, God, we put our trust in the one thing that will not let us down, and that's you. And we recognize that our faith is not just about understanding what you've done, but having a commitment to you and being in a life-giving relationship with you. And so as creation recognized its creator on that day, may we, as we bow our heads, now recognize the one who made us and who can give a mega storm and a mega calm. Lord, for the person who needs that little seed of faith, for the one who is so close to recognizing the idea of you, help us now to recognize you, the living God, Lord of all creation and Lord of me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.